the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Area 51 Raid succeeds in convincing AIs that humans are so gullible they have to take over. E-Arcs and Cosmic Sharks, plus we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We continue our discussion with Charles E. Gannon this time on the podcast in the concluding entry in a two-part interview discussing his new Cain Riordan series novel, Mark of Cain. Chuck takes us into the complex political world of the series and talks about this action-packed novel that also is full of some very cool science fiction. That's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, the September EARCs are out on their Naruto runs for the next couple of months. Now an EARC is the luck overload that cycles between two horseshoes with one placed upward and another above it facing down. If you touch the gap, you might just win the lottery and die of a toothache on the same day, so be careful. No, 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 that's not what an EARC is at all. An EARC is an electronic advanced reading copy of a book. Now, we put these out about three to four months in advance of the book coming out in print and in ebook form. They are the copy-edited version of the book, but not proofread yet. Uh, they're basically the galleys that we would also send out to reviewers and such, but we put them on sale as well. You can get your favorite series or try a new series early before anyone else can by several months. And these are available exclusively at Bain.com. The new September e-arcs include Accepting the Lance by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, Corval in the Crosshairs, Exiled from Liad after bombing a city to save it from the Department of the Interior's infernal weapons and plans, Clan Corval has gone to ground on the backwater planet Sherbleek, whose people are as untamed as its weather. But the Department of the Interior is not done with Clan Corville yet. They seek a final, fully reckoned revenge with Sherbleek and Corville ships and people everywhere in the crosshairs. Next up is Target Rich Environment, Volume 2 by Larry Correa. More stories from the Monster Hunter himself. These are stories from the creator of Monster Hunter International, the Grimnor Chronicles, and the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, Larry Correa. This is the second volume, collecting all of best-selling author Larry Correa's short stories, novelettes, and novellas. Correa's novels are known for their hard-hitting, no-holes-barred action sequences, in-depth world-building, and vivid characterization, and a dollop of humor. Now Correa turns to the short form to deliver short stories that take no prisoner. Also out in EARC is Freehold Resistance, edited by Michael Z. Williamson. Join the resistance. When the UN invaded the freehold of grain, the intent was simple, force a non-compliant star nation back into the collective. What the politicians hadn't accounted for was that the freehold had spent 200 years as the haven for every independent, rebellious, self-reliant adventurer in human space. Grain and its space habitats have resources beyond measure, retired intelligence agents, disabled veterans, animal handlers, petty smugglers, half-lame computer specialists, research scientists, planetary engineers, and they all have one goal in mind, make the invaders suffer for their presumption. This isn't just resistance, it's vengeance. And Freehold Resistance features all new stories by Larry Correa, Michael Z. Williamson, Brad Torgerson, Mike Massa, Casey Azell, and more. Freehold Resistance, edited by Michael Z. Williamson, Target Rich Environment, Volume 2 by Larry Correa, and Accepting the Lance by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller are all available in eart form exclusively at Bain.com. Get them while they exist. This is part two of a two-part interview. Part one is available on last week's podcast. One welcome, Charles E. Gannon, to the podcast. Hello, Chuck. Hi, how are you doing, Tony? 
Pretty good. Um, Charles E. Gannon is the author of Compton Crook Award-winning Nebula Finalist Fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, and Raising Cain in the Cain Reorden series. Further books in the series are, uh, there's Cain's Mutiny. Uh, we'll talk about another one in a moment. He is the co-author with Eric Flint of 1636, The Papal Stakes, and 1636, Commander Cantrell on the West Indies in Eric Ring's Ring of Fire series. And there's others, right? Uh, uh, think of Vatican the... Sanction. And then there were a couple of anthologies, yeah. Uh, with Steve White, Chuck is the co-author of the Starfire series novels, um, Extremist, Imperative, and Oblivion. Chuck is also the author of multiple short stories. He is a member of Sigma, the SF think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium, which was a long time ago now. <laughs> a form, it doesn't seem like that long. Yeah, I know. A former professor, Chuck lives in Annapolis, Maryland, with his wife and children, although some of his children are deployed in such these days. Um, out now at Booksellers Everywhere is Mark of Cain, which is book five, I believe, in the Terran Republic series, featuring series hero Cain Riordan. Maybe talk a little bit more. But, all right, so the 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 descent into the virtuality that has inflicted infected a lot of the um, Dornani um, society as a symptom. Um, the I guess so. Almdul takes Cain to meet this uh, his sort of his sort of mentor and master who becomes a mentor of sort to Cain, um, or at least a, a a wise man's figure, um, Thlunrult. Who is uh, who is a great character, very fun. Um, who sort of runs like a, a Zen Puritan back to the back to the land kind of uh, place. Explain what all that is and what what the the basic problem and and all this stuff with them with the 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 breeding problems that the Dornani are having and such. They they admire. It's funny how Andul. Almdul um, admires Cain, um, who is sort of a polymath go-getter guy, because there's not anybody like that who is a Dornani anymore, right? They're... Well, the, probably the closest to it are the ones who are considered cowboys, like like, mm -hmm. and those are former custodians. So, Flunerol, who's a, a new character, his his um, uh, mentor or men, men, mentores or mentrix, I guess is uh, somebody that's been, been encountered before in the series, Glyash, who is, the, who is in the very first book as the third arbiter. And, and the third arbiter is a fairly senior position on the senior council. They're basically, they're third in seniority um, of, of this, of this you know, the, the, the leadership, the high leadership of the collective. Um, all of them are custodians, not a shock. Um, all of them also had, at one time or another, the responsibility of being the senior custodian responsible for uh, essentially reporting on, observing, making recommendations regarding uh, humans via Earth, from Earth. Um, and, so, um, and so this is who Thlunrolf is. So yes, he is, he is Almdol's mentor, and he, is, he has retired, sort of, <laughs> To uh, to this to this planet, uh, Ruayuk, uh, which is uh, and by the way, I don't make these names up just to make them sound difficult. Um, actually, one of the first things I do with aliens is I take a look at how they make sounds, how, given their evolution, the environment in which they live, how they would make sounds. As you said earlier in the in the podcast, uh, the the um, Actually, the the uh, the Dornani, despite the fact that they have a lamprey mouth, have some of the the widest range of pronunciation possibilities. But if you think, for instance, about that sort of that sort of arrangement in the mouth, um, they they have a lot of, I guess you could say, sort of uh, of um, there are a lot of soft vowels. Uh, excuse me, there are a lot of soft consonants. There are a lot of long vowels. Um, and, uh, so you, that's, that's why, that's why you hear these, these names like Flunrult and Ruayuk and Almdul. They, they're there for a reason. Um, and that is, that's kind of a, I guess, um, Publishers Weekly and others have been nice enough to sort of, uh, call out, I guess, the, uh, the attention I give to, uh, 
to the exosapien species. And I was really, I've been looking forward to, to writing the Dornani for a long time because I've known from book one and long before I, long before the first book got published, I knew who they were. I knew what was back there and I knew it was some very cool stuff. Um, and so to talk about their breeding and why they have this problem, he runs this planet, which is essentially, um, yeah, it's kind of a, I guess it's kind of, you might call it a, um, a birthing spa in a sense. And, and birthing is the wrong way to call it because in some, the, the, the typical male female division that, that gets translated into so many alien species is really not present here in many ways for the, the one that would be called the female by us is actually the larger of the species um, is often the more aggressive and really um, is, is um, there is there is nothing vaguely like mating. It's more like it's it's more like salmon, if you want to think of it that way. That it's it's time for you know, it's it's time for the milk to be in the water and for the the one that makes the eggs to to um, to sort of get those eggs fertilized, and and then they're laid. And there really is om- there's almost no interconnection that way. And as a result, you get a lot of them. You know, it's it's like fish. You get a whole lot. And in fact, many of them, and this is this is this is evolution in action. When they are born into the in, in the natural way, there are predators in the water that eliminate the great majority, probably nine tenths or more, of the young, the spawn that are that are created when these eggs hatch. Um, and this is uh, this is this is probably yeah. Let's put it like this: when you start that way, you know the entire notion of a of a parent organism that would be highly protective of its young is 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 precluded because you know clearly then the idea of 90% casualties would be absolutely intolerable so they when they get to the other side of the breeding pond as the case may be then they there are there are others adults in the water that are are actually going through uh, sort of what you might call a dance almost that is consistent with the activities or it's associated with the activities that they perform. Um, and the, and it is the, the orientation of each one of the spawn as they see that they sort of, without knowing they're making a choice because they're really, it would be like, you know, asking a, a one month old to make a choice. Um, they just gravitate towards whatever they gravitate towards, and then they then they're in that association usually for the rest of their lives. So, so this is the way it was in the old days, and that's the way it is on the planet. The Flimrolf is sort of, I guess you could say, distant, cranky godfather of, um, and overseer of. Um, most Dornani though are no longer born this way. Uh, most Dornani need assistance. Most Dornani, um, it is uh, essentially almost an, uh, an assisted uh, fertility issue. And most Dornani don't have any desire to reproduce. Um, Dornani removed from the wild immediately begin to have less of an inclination to reproduce. Uh, as, as is noted here, there is nothing, they don't have the equivalent of sex drive. They don't have, they don't have the equivalent of a of either a maternal or a mater- or paternal instinct. None of these things exist. They do have a kind of a very strong mentor instinct, but it's a one-on-one sort of bond. And it, it, it arises out of commonality of interests and, and I guess you could say cognitive template. So going back to that sense of, of Andal, and one of, the, one of the peculiar things that sort of pops up and it's first, it's, it explains a lot of, preferences that we see the that, that we see the the Dornani have for humans they have a they kind of bond almost more tightly with humans with whom they have really less reason to bond than they do with each other simply because the humans they the the human tendency towards how we make friends family loyalty that that transcends not only transcends convenience but even personal survival is is almost second nature to probably the great majority of us, at least when it concerns our kids and the, the, our you know our nuclear family and and select friends and maybe broader than that. This is a this is a much dimmer instinct in the in the Dornani, but a lot particularly the ones who are who have been custodians, particularly the ones who are active, particularly the ones who I guess you could say have seen the sharp end of the stick. They have a very great appreciation for the importance of that, and they gravitate towards it. 
So this is um, this is something that that shows up, and it actually becomes a sort of basis of of bigotry amongst the Dornani. You know, it's like, oh, you're a human lover. It's sort of like you're going native. You know, is is sort of one of the problems that 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 they're facing. The and their tendency then, as they got into virtua, really deeply undermines the procreative whatever procreative instincts they have. It's why would you why do you why do you want to do that? You know, why do you want to? And do you want to live in this sort of, you know, in a, in a very, very primitive environment, uh, which, is what, which is what is present on this planet Ruayuk? They really have taken it back to the way it used to be. It is a much more uh, clinically overseen and assisted process without the, the tremendous profusion of young, without the predators in the water, and, and you know, the, the, the like. As, as happens with, we can see this in humans too, that we have instincts that kind of, um, that if we are not exercising uh, certain, certain tendencies or just exercising our bodies in certain ways, some of our instincts and our appetites change. And, and this is what's gone on with them because they are no longer uh, interacting with each other enough. Their, their tendency to procreate really begins to, to collapse and it begins to implode, really. And this is this is all part of what's uh, what is going on in the um, in the Dornani collective. And I, I've I've yeah. done as I've actually probably gone over the spoiler level there. But well, the um, there are different uh, and and on the opposite extreme of of the lunar rule um, is in his folks or people like or Dornani like the what are they called the Logi? Yes. Who have just become spacefaring uh, artificial inseminators? Who are, are they? Sort of seem like um, rapacious. Sort of uh, um, the idea of gypsies um, from the 19th century or something like that. Um, so uh, I guess the way I would frame them is, without giving away too much. Um, at a time in the distant past, before the Dornani even became sort of the um, the most advanced of the species, but were one of the least advanced of the species, um, let us just say that external powers made sure that that there was a fifth column, and the fifth column largely d- discriminated itself along the lines of was was where the members of this fifth, the members of this fifth column were usually born in space or extremely low gravity environments in consequence they had almost none of the sort of primal experience that that is still is still embraced on Ruayuk um and and they became um not merely they did not merely find it uh, a planetary environment a, a natural biome to be um uninteresting they found it to be kind of unclean, unclean, unpredictable, and ultimately resented the rest of the Dornani for the focus they put on that, and the and the fact that that so much Dornani law is protective of green worlds and species. And their attitude was, these are infestations. We live just fine in space. We don't need that. And yet we're being dragged around by the nose of all these. You know, the people control the policy and the power. Are are saying that that's what's important. Well, the hell with that. And they had they had uh, a, a a rather sharp uh, and kinetic disagreement um, many many millennia in the past now, which was resolved, but only in the sense that one side was no longer able to continue the fight. Um, and th- that side, the loji, the ones who live on on a what are what are called the great rings. Which is their word for you know essentially a Taurus um, uh, space station. So they they get artificial. They don't live in zero G, um, but their their attitude is a space station is just fine, um, a rotating space station. And so they um, there is uh, there is that resentment that is in place. And uh, I would I would say it's um, rather rather than 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 traffic in, in unfortunate representations of the Romy slash gypsies. I'm simply going to say, imagine it as a, as a, um, as a group that was, that has been, um, 
because of their lifestyle, um, they consider themselves ferociously uh, suppressed. Um, their voices are not heard, and they have been denied any ready access to power. They do not have any representatives on the um, on in in government, and they have been left to sort of, um, I guess you could say, operate at the level of black market, gray market expediters, the people who do the work that the the Dornani, the rest of the Dornani, do not want to do. Uh, they are uh, and and as a as a as a sort of I guess you could say cautionary tale. Um, one of the things that happens when, when the great power, and this is that fall of Rome moment, when, when the wealthy are able to afford, so to speak wealthy, when the wealthy are able to afford um, almost an eternity in virtua, who, well, it's the ones who aren't who are actually left doing things. And people who are, have to do things generally have a lot more ability than those who don't. Um, so it's, um, there, I guess you could say there, I consider without hopefully this coming to the, the four, because I really just sort of played this out the way it seemed to play out logically. But I do think there may be some cautionary, you know, very broadly based cautionary tales in it as well. Hmm. Uh, one other thing about the Dornani before we, um, um, is that they, they can construct virtual Almost, almost intelligence, almost, almost uh, AIs. Um, and Kane Kane encounters a couple, a couple that are rather, rather surprising and perhaps upsetting, upsetting to him. Um, yes, they are. And, talk about and I'm not going to give those identities away simply because that would be a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, go ahead. But it's uh, the the fact that that they need to think that that you have to encounter them without knowing that they're they're not real in order to not make them implode is kind of an interesting twist that you put in there. Yeah. It's so, so, so one of the things that I thought a lot about this and actually I've, there've been a couple of reviews which have compared my take on, on these sort of things. I, I was astounded to see that they were, they were compared favorably to Neil Stevenson um, because he's of course done a lot of work in this area himself. Uh, I started looking at this and I was thinking, so if, if you wake up and you think that, you know, you just, you know, you've maybe it's, it's almost like you had an, an episode, like a, a little, a, a mal seizure or a, a sort of, you know, a, a brain blank, uh, that, that, you know, it's like, well, I, how did I get here? What was I doing? Um, but then if everybody starts treating you too cautiously, too much like a patient starts asking, well, do you remember this? That's the moment when a human mind will basically start wondering, or any mind will start wondering, wait a minute, why are they asking me this? Should I, do I, and then they start asking themselves the questions, and they start probing at it. And it is that act of probing which can find the holes in the template, the mental template that has been created in the process of trying to construct the AI from memories. Uh, because the nature of memories is not, as is indicated in this, is... Um, it's pretty much impossible to get a complete scan of all memories because if you think about it, our own experience of memory is very, very hit and miss. You know, things that we have a reason to recall frequently, we recall well, right? You know, it's a, let's say you, and this is certainly the case, you know, just take a look at what constitutes psychological trauma. It's the, it is the fact that we keep reliving it, right? Um, and, and there are other moments, high, you know, high points and low points and unusual points that we perhaps revisit more often than other um, stories we have to tell other people, you know, so they, you know, that they'll be amused or that they understand us or et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the stuff, the day-to-day stuff that we forget. You know, if, if I were to ask you what you went shopping for in the grocery store six months ago, you know, on a given Sunday, um, my guess is that most human beings would ask, was I shopping on that day? Um, much less that they, they knew what they bought and what price it was. And yet, we experienced it, and it, it is probably, you know, this is one of the mysteries of human memory. Why do we remember what we remember, and how accessible are the different memories? At what point is it that we don't remember something at all? In other words, there's no recollection of it. Or at what point is it simply beyond recall because it's been considered such a low priority uh, data point, if you will? 
and playing around with that, one of the things that, as you as you said at the outset, the the Dornani are very very high tech compared to us, but not so high tech that everything is unthinkable. And one of the things we we come to understand is that a lot of the stuff that they're using, they might not fully understand themselves. Um, and and you know their their ability to to get memory is is restricted by this function, which is how often a given memory is recalled, how recent is it, how important was it. You know, there's a whole set of variables. So where if you start, therefore, to, to come back to this, if you start talking to one of these AIs, um, you know, and start by doing so in a way that's almost like you're talking to a patient, like you're testing it, then what happens with the AI? Well, it's, it starts reaching back and discovers that it really has a lot of more blank spots than it even realized um, and, and undoes itself. It, it deconstructs, yeah. essentially, as, as, it, as it, it realizes that there, it, the foundation it assumed it has, it does not have. And um, which if you spread that sort of realization over time, remember most of the, what is the chance that you're going to try to remember something that is so important that you hadn't thought about it? If you were, if I were to ask you, you know, so so to get back to that thing about you going shopping for groceries six months ago, I could ask you that, and you would know, you know, did you? When I asked you that, Tony, did you suddenly think, wait a minute, maybe I'm an AI? No, you thought, well, geez, no one remembers that, and that's exactly what we think, and so there's no threat in if that sort of stuff is is the flaw that gets that that gets tweaked on because it's a flaw we assume to exist in our own memories. It's, it's when something more important might not be there and people are probing at it. And then there's the stuff that's on the borderline, right? The stuff that we should have some memory of, some vague memory, but we don't have any memory of it at all. And that's the danger that you're dealing with, that you hit one of those things yeah. and that leads to a sort of almost um, uh, obsessive, you know, sort of pulling at a ball of yarn that goes on. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there's a couple of, that's a you know a broad philosophical explanation, but it really gets evocative and uh, and kind of touching and and a little um, sad even in the book. Um, there's some great scenes uh, there that uh, the readers can experience. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I can recall two specific occasions where one one could say that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the so we know. Kane is trying to find Elena and sort of figure out what the relationship of the Dornani to humanity might be and, and whether they could help us um, deal with the, some of the problems that some of the races that want to get rid of us <laughs> have posed to us. Um, oh, we should talk about the lost soldiers before we forget about them. Um, before I forget about bringing it back up. Um, well, and, and also, as a lot of political uh, entities on Earth would like for everybody to forget about them. Yeah. Or not yeah. learn about them, I guess. Yeah. So the Lost Soldiers really come up out of book four, um, Kane's Mutiny. If you haven't read that, it's kind of hard to dodge spoilers. But let's say that at a certain point, the Dornani were not able, because of this book kind of explains why they had to get help. They needed to actually recruit sort of associate custodians to keep an eye on things. And they, they did that. And they had to do it for Earth. And the reason they had to do it for Earth was because Earth was sort of one of the two groups that was going to come very soon, probably. They, they could sort of tell that we were getting near the place where we would achieve that kind of technological capability where they would have to do a contact, tell us about the the accords, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and they tagged and tapped another group. However, this group is um, is a is a, a kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing, and um, and uh, to, to 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 make a long story short, they this group decided to use its sudden access to Earth to occasionally pilfer people from Earth, people who would not be missed. These were usually groups that in combat were almost certainly going to be lost without a trace. Um, and for which, by the way, I went back and every single individual, whether they don't have the same names, but every single individual is actually per, uh, pulled from a, gen, a, a genuine MIA account in which the bodies were never recovered. 
that going all the way back to the early days of World War II. Um, and so there are a bunch of humans um, which have therefore been taken off Earth for reasons that everybody, everybody has a different hypothesis. And until this novel, it turns out that most of them were pretty much not right. Um, and in the fourth novel, they have actually been sort of introduced into an alien colony world, and there is a, there's a, 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 a fight brewing between these displaced humans, both in time and space, and, uh, and the aliens. Um, so they are... Um, the thing that makes them really, really important is that if you get a chance to talk to any of the lost soldiers, or almost any of the lost soldiers, they, their mere existence, and certainly what they will recount, will very much indicate the identity of who um, took them off of Earth. And when the full nature of that identity is revealed, um, which for anybody who's read the second book, will, to the end of the second book, is probably not going to be shocked at, um, it is going to set up probably if early on we were talking about how if that if two branches of humanity had to have an argument, they would have to have it with each other. Um, it it would probably lead to that, and to to exactly that sort of circumstance. And if that took place for Earth, it means that we almost certainly get our heads handed to us. If that happens, the Dornani are getting tired. They're, they really can see that they may not be able to be the custodians much longer. A lot of them have their eyes on us. Um, in addition to which, we are pretty much the only other highly proactive species that is both advanced and capable of, pretty routinely capable of aggression without going too far. Um, there is another species called the Hukruk, which is quite capable of aggression, but they're so capable of aggression that they kind of frequently reset the, the civilization clock on themselves and, and have found it very difficult to maintain what I'll call any sort of throughput of civilization and advancement they, because of their constant tendency towards really, really debilitating, backsliding wars. Um, so, so it's bad for us. It's bad for the Dornani, and even those who might, the, the, the ones who might fight us, really don't want that to happen. For a variety of reasons, the, the, the other side of humanity would very much like to take Earth intact. As a matter of fact, they, don't even, they would much prefer not having to fight for it. They would prefer to um, take it over from the inside, which for those people who've read the second book uh, and saw shadows of it, certainly in the first book, know that this was what a lot, of a lot of corporations were sort of suborned for exactly this purpose, to try to turn uh, Earth in a direction so that it could be, I guess you could say, brought into this other fold um, without having to, uh, to, to do anything that would resemble a bull dancing in a china shop. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of, uh, kind of the... And if the law soldiers become known it is going to become almost unavoidable for all these dominoes to go down. So, so, and, and that's, why, that's why people were willing to put a, a crosshair on, on Kane's back, because there are just a whole lot of people who have stand so much to lose. And they can't, no one is, you know, there are some people who are willing to trust him but are worried, and there are other people who are worried and not willing to trust him, or any human being for that matter. So that, um, that's very much what's going on, and they are... Um, at the same time that, that Kane is moving through Dornani space, the lost soldiers and those who were essentially entrusted with helping them remain hidden and safe are realizing that they are coming to the end of that rope. That fuse is burning low, and they're going to have to find another answer. And by the end of the book, uh, those two answers may actually wind up having a very direct contextual relationship to each other. Yeah. Well, what does um, so as you say, Cain is is being drawn and pushing himself deeper into Dornani and finding out things about them. Um, what? Why are they? Uh, what do they want from him that that they would um, keep facilitating this and 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 keep pushing him his his friends in Dornani space? Well. Um... 
it, it, so what they want from him, which is why they're willing to tolerate him in their space at all, um, is the, um, the, the arbiters, the senior arbiters, want to find out from him where the lost soldiers are. Uh, for exactly the same reason that humanity does, for the reason I said, but they they are, they realize that if the existence of the lost soldiers becomes evident, it's not only going to indicate that one of the members of the accord has been doing a wrong thing; it's also been concealing its identity from the very first time that it joined the accord and has been breaking these rules. Um, it also indicate it will also indicate that there was a lot of suspicion that this was in fact the case inside the collective and certainly amongst the ranks of the custodians. So if the lost soldiers are revealed, questions are going to be asked, which points to all of that. And all of that is, it has not only a chance to, to split the accord, it also has the chance to split the collective because part of the collective really doesn't want what would have to happen which is that the custodians would essentially have to say, okay, you guys who were lying to us the whole time, you're out. But that has other consequences. It means that the only legitimate representative of humanity is Earth. But Earth is very, very young in terms of the ways of interstellar space and the technology that it wields. Um, so there are a lot... Um, one of the things that, that, that I find very tiresome sometimes in certain science fiction books that are usually more like space opera books is that uh, alien species can be monolithic. Um, they cannot tell sort of everybody get in one line. There may be one rival party. Durnani politics are at least as tangled probably as our own. Um, and, and this is an example because they do have real problems and they've got a lot of different concerns, a lot of different solutions, a lot of different people who are saying, of all the solutions you pick, don't pick that one, except for that they can't agree on which one that is. Um, and this is, uh, so this is part of what's going on, and this is the consequences for them. Now, after he refuses to tell them, because he really, when you get right down to it, he knows a little more than he's revealing, but, for the most, but he actually can't say, I know where they are right now. He took, he took steps to make sure of that. And people either won't believe him or they find that that means that they consider letting him into Dornani's space. It was there many, many, many uh, advised against it. Now they feel, told you so. Um, um, and then after that, he's sort of, he's, he's at loose ends. You know, it's not, they're, they're not going to help him, but they're not going to send him home because this is an, another example of them finding it very difficult to take action. They can just decide to sort of say, well, Aldo's willing to still, to still trot him around our space. Of course, the next person on the senior arbiter's list is Aldo, because once, once Kane got into their space, they were able to ask him leading questions, which confirms in their mind that Aldo did operate without proper clearance on a couple of occasions in order to help Earth repel the invasion. And now the forces that would really like to pull the custodian's fangs, so to speak, are, um, are hot after Aldol. So Aldol knows that now he's got a fuse burning. And so he is quick moving Kane from place to place to place in terms of meeting, as I said earlier, that chain of Dornani that, that Kane has to sort of ingratiate himself, or at least get their cooperation in order to find the next, uh, the next piece of information, the next contact that is going to be required for him to be able to reach Elena. And I obviously am not going to tell anybody how that works out. Yeah. 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 Well, that's really, that, that's a, a lot to digest. And um, there's, um, and excellent. in the making, yeah, it gets a, at the end of this book, as, as people can probably see, it's about to get the series turns around 180 degrees, but in a way, it also gets a whole lot simpler. Yeah, what uh, there's there's another book after this um, in the in the works, I think. Oh, there are there are two. So Tony um, has greenlit uh, on the next arc of four books. Contracts exist for two. 
this is called the species arc. Um, we do have a title for the next one. It's called Endangered Species. And it is yeah. called and it is called that because this is the species arc. And the next four books are, and this will give you a sort of a sense of how things are going, endangered species, protected species, killer species, and dominant species. So that's that's where we're going. <laughs> uh -huh. All right. So the uh the, this this vast uh what do we call the 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 all the aliens who know each other but and have an agreement, it's an accord, right? That's what you're calling it's it. It's called right? the accord, yeah. The accord, yeah. Yeah. We have so much more to explore there and humanity is, is finding its place within this this um this organization and finding out what it what we might actually be and things like that. <laughs> so much coolness remains. Yes. I hope so. There are also some other uh, novels coming up on, on contract, which uh, actually are showing some of what's going on, I guess you could say, closer to home during the same period of time, um, which will, and those, those arcs tie into the larger, the larger story of Cain and actually set pieces in motion. Um, and I, I'll, uh, I'll say that uh, one of those books is going to be written with, uh, with Eric Flint, Who's coming in, and we're swapping roles. So this time, uh, this time he's he's playing in my sandbox, right? right which it seems only polite given how many times I have played in him. Yeah, very cool, very cool. That'll be fun. Um, and you have the you have some uh, non-Bane, but uh, we we have them up uh, some short story collections that are set in in the uh, Terran Republic universe, right? Absolutely. Uh, there was a, a Kickstarter called Lost Signals. And uh, just so people understand, uh, Tony and I talked about that beforehand, and we decided it was best done this way. It's a very, very different conceit. It's the sort of conceit that I'm not sure a bricks and mortar would ever be comfortable with, because it starts with, it's called Lost Signals, because when you open the book, uh, the first thing you see are a collection of, of essentially, it's like wire copy. Um, and then when you you get past those few pages, and then what you discover is the rest of the book are the stories of what actually happened. Because each one of those bits of wire copy has been in one way or another, it's either only part of the story, or it's been sanitized, or in some cases it is, it is knowingly wrong uh, and misrepresentative of what, of what actually happened. So it, it fills in a whole bunch of things. Um, and, uh, and some of those short stories could show up again someplace. So we'll, we'll see, keep an eye on it, but yeah, thank you for bringing it up. It's available through ring of fire press. You can just enter lost signals and Kane Riordan or lost signals and turn Republic and you will find it. Yeah, and I think and it's, it's on, on it's also available through the Bane's it's, it's absolutely available at Bane.com also. Yeah. As an ebook. So that's great. So, uh, what else are you working on, Chuck? <laughs> uh, aside from completing this vast universe? Uh, yeah, well, that's that's actually <laughs> don't don't hold me to the calendar on that one. Um, uh, there's a lot of story here. Um, there's so um, I am uh, in the process of finishing a great honor that was also a ton of fun, which is I'm finishing up a book called. At the edge of uh, at the end of the world, and uh, it is a, uh, a solo book uh, that where uh, I'm allowed to play in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising universe, and it's a big change for me in a lot of ways. It is a first-person narrative, um, but but it is it is a first-person epistolary narrative. So you don't know if the person who's telling you the story at any given moment is even going to be alive come the next entry because it's like a logbook. Um, so, uh, so I've had a lot of fun with that, and it is a very different setup. They're the only person who could vaguely be considered a, a sort of kick-ass military pro um, is not in the book for, very, for a very, very long time. And, um, and the, the majority of it are a bunch of kids who are uh, on a senior cruise on one of these sort of sail-to-adventures you know, except for they got they got they got the last the end of the stick because they were all the people who who signed up for it last. So they get the place that nobody else wanted to go, which is South Georgia Islands. Uh, which, if if you know the map, and if you don't, you may want to look at it. 
these are these are probably some of the the most inhospitable cold places on the face of the earth um they're great for science um and uh, and a variety of other things but this is where they're bound and they get on the boat to go there um essentially right as the plague is starting to hit the continental u.s so they um they have this strange situation where they are isolated and at sea um when the plague does its worst to humanity and they are going to have to emerge into that post-apocalyptic world what's it called I What's shocked him called? into silence. <laughs> it's called At the Sorry. End of the World. Well, I was about, I have a feeling you're about to say something about the Ring of Fire. Um. Uh, exactly. Um, so back, uh, back now in early August, I turned in uh, a book that I wrote with, really, it was overwhelmingly written by Robert Waters. I probably wrote 15% mm-hmm. of the book. Um, and it's called Calabar's War, and it's set in the New World, and it is um, in. It begins in Brazil. It goes up through the Spanish Main. It overlaps with the action of uh, of, of Admiral Trump and Eddie Cantrell uh, at a couple of points. And it is. Um, it was a book we were very careful about writing because it is the first time um, that the 1632 Ring of Fire universe is really taking on the issue of the Middle Passage and slavery uh, in the New World. Um, and, and you know what, you, you don't, you, that obviously, there, I don't think one can, can grapple with a, a, a topic with more gravity. And uh, given that the 1632 books, it's a, it's, it's a little bit of a tonal change because um, usually most 1632 books always find a way to infuse some humor in um, this is really, I think, a story where, where, um, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to say that there are no light moments at all, but let's put it like this. Every time we thought about a light moment in this book, it wasn't going to have anything to do with the depictions of slavery. That's for damn sure. Um, and, uh, and in general, it's just, this is, there, I can't think of a more serious subject. And, uh, and the, I think the tone of the narrative reflects that. Now, as soon as I'm done jumping past now the John Ringo book, the, or rather the book that's set in John Ringo's universe, um, I return to the 1632 universe to a book called 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line. And this is the, this is the sequel to uh, 1636, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies. And um, I'm really looking forward to writing that book as well. I, there's already about 30, 35,000 words written in it. And, um, and, so, and then after that, I finally get around to uh, beginning the, um, I have a, an epic fantasy trilogy uh, that uh, under contract with Bain. And uh, that one is going to be a little bit of a, of a slipstream, and it's going to span some of the expected conventions of fantasy on its head, and uh, I've been looking forward to writing that for, at least for me, <laughs> long before it was contracted, well over a decade I've been looking forward to writing that. And it's called The Broken World. Yeah, yeah. I think we've talked about that before. We so have. Cool. We talked about that a long time ago. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Very cool, very cool. We would look, greatly look forward to that um, sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the book How to Write Now at Booksellers Everywhere is Mark of Cain by Charles E. Gannon, which is uh, a continuation and a real, a real um, exciting, um, finally meet the Dornani kind of uh, culminating uh, adventure in the um, in the Terran Republic. Cain Riordan. I don't know. Do you call this a cycle, the the Cain cycle, or something like that? Is well, it's it's called the Cain Riordan series, and I didn't call it that. <laughs> I wouldn't have had the nerve to call it that. So originally, it was all called uh, simply the uh, the. It was called the Tales of the Terran Republic. Tales was uh, dropped for a variety of reasons. It just became the Terran Republic series. But by the time the second book was out, and and doing as well as it was, people were calling it the Cain Riordan series. And you know what? If it's good enough, you know when 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 your readers brand your 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 series with the with the protagonist's name 
you don't disagree with them. Like I like to say, if it's good enough for Honor Harrington, it's good enough for Kane Riordan. That's for sure. So um, yeah. So yeah, it, this is called the Kane Riordan arc, I guess you could say, or series. But it takes place inside the larger universe of the Terran Republic. And um, and for instance, that book that I'll be doing with with Eric, which is called Triage, is you're gonna you you'll you'll meet people there that you've seen in Kane books, but you will not see Kane there. So there's a reason to distinguish between the two. Yeah, cool. Well, it's a vast and cool um, world to explore. Um, so, and the the book right now is Mark of Kane, and it's at booksellers everywhere. Um, well, Chuck, thanks again for. Uh, for coming on the podcast and telling us um, some of the background, some of the great uh, characters, and the amazing world building that's that's gone into this series. Well, thank you very much. And the one thing we didn't touch on is that there is a lot of action in Mark of Cain. And, and probably the only reason we couldn't touch on it is because every piece of action in it is really, really important to the plot. I mean, super important to the plot. That's how a lot of the things get unfolded and discovered. So... It, I hope, will not just be an interesting and enthralling read, but also a bit of a nail-biter, too. At least that's how people have reacted oh, yeah. to it so yeah. far. Well, that's the problem with interviewing you on the books, is that there's the, it's just, they're suspense novels, in a way, and there's too many spoilers if we talk too much about the plot. So That's right. Um, it's, really, it's really exciting. So. Well, thanks, Tony. Thanks. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Oh, uh, give us a, where are you going to be? Anything coming up that uh, we should know about? Uh, so I am going to be uh, for only like half a day at Capclave here in D.C. I'm going to be, I believe, at Pensacon the beginning of next year. I am a shout-out to a, a very new con. I think it's their only second year, but they, it seems like a great con. Con Fantasy. I'm going to be there as a as a as the special guest. I think uh, Larry is Larry Correa is going to be guest of honor. Uh, Dave Butler is going to be uh, another special guest. So it is a it is a very much a sort of bane environment, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, that'll be and cool. That's I'm, uh, February yeah. 2020. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, I'll be, I believe, at Balticon. In May, I will. I, I'm pretty much. You, you can always find me at Liberty Con. You'll find me at Dragon Con next year, just the same way you found me there this year. Um, and um, and who knows? I, I, I'm hoping that maybe I'll be in a. Uh, I'll be in a, a fix at Dragon Con that I that that maybe Mark of Cain, if I get very lucky, will be will be up for a dragon, and then I, I figure out if I can actually if I can be a presenter for an award ceremony that has one of my books in it. That's a We'll have to. I hope to have the problem of crossing that bridge when we come to it. A good problem to have. Yes, we'll we'll see about that. Yeah. But um, it's yeah. It's a great it's a great read. Mark of Cain, and thanks so much again, Chuck, for uh, for talking about it. Thanks for having me on. That was part two of a two part interview. Part 1 is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book 1 in the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. 
Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Thera joined him half an hour later. The wind had blown her hood off, her black hair was sodden and hanging over her face, and she seemed angry. She had two things for him. A bowl consisting of sausages and some unidentifiable vegetable mush, already turned into a cold soup by the rainy walk over, and a piece of paper. A single cheap lantern was the only source of light in the entire barn, so Ashok had to call upon the heart to strengthen his eyesight enough to clearly see what was on the damp, ruined notice she handed him. Even then, the ink had run so much that it was hard to read. The Somsack will pay a 10,000 note bounty for information that leads to the death of the fallen protector, Ashok Vidal. I never really had to concern myself with money, but that seems like a lot. For that much, I should kill you myself, Thera hissed. You didn't tell us that the Thakur of this territory burns with a special hate for you. Ashok shrugged. I smote the tongue from the man's mouth in a duel. He was so foul and insulting, he's lucky that's all I did to him. But Madame Somsak does seem petty enough to hold a grudge. You cut off his tongue, and now we're riding across his lands. You didn't think to tell me this before. If I made a list of all the men who wanted me dead for one cause or another, it would be a very long list. That wasn't a bad idea. Maybe by the time they'd reached the ice coast, he'd be finished. It would give him something to do to pass the time. I expected wanted posters for you at some point. That's no surprise, but not for that kind of fortune. Thera looked around making sure that the castlers were too occupied to hear her. Inside the inn, all the travelers are telling stories about you. They're saying the Black Heart recently killed an entire prison, then murdered half a legion on a bridge, before burning a village and throwing all the women and children in the water to be eaten by demons. None of that's true. It doesn't matter. The people here think it's true. You'll find no friends in these lands now. Good. Criminals shouldn't have friends. It never ceases to amaze me that someone who has seen so much of the world could be so oblivious to it. We had friends. Now they'll give you up to this somsack without a second thought. Most warriors here would avoid you because some Vidal criminal isn't worth dying over, but this particular Thackle would swim the ocean to rip out your guts. So now they'll be motivated. You should have told me. Thera was glaring at him and for whatever reason, that made him want to apologize. In the future, I'll try to notify you of things like this. I am sorry. That seems to mollify the warrior woman a bit. She pushed her wet hair away from her eyes, absently making sure her scar was hidden. There's no indication he knows you're here. This is just grasping at straws. If he's willing to offer something like this, just in the off chance anyone sees you, I can't imagine what kind of ransom Heart of Vidal must be willing to pay for that sword. It was hard to imagine Vidal, the strongest of them all, experiencing the same fate as a tiny, poor house like Somsak or Dev. But Harta was no fool. He would pay a fortune to get Angru Vidal into the hands of a new bearer. Until that happened, Vidal would be vulnerable. Ashak wasn't sure who Omand was punishing more with this ridiculous endeavor. Him, or all of Great House Vidal. It was especially cruel either way. I'll be careful, Ashok assured her. You'd better. There's a lot of people like me on these roads, sharp-eyed and always looking for an angle. A whole world beneath your shiny law-abiding one. Those are the folks I would have used for checkpoints and new traveling papers, but 10,000 notes would set them up for life. Our keeper has some money from the rebellion's backers, but nothing that can compete with that. If I'd known you were this popular, I never would have agreed to this. Freeing a lunatic from prison and getting him from one end of lock to the other without killing half the countryside in the process, no problem, I thought. I'm such a sucker. Thera shook her head, annoyed. You're lucky I stick to my contracts. 
You underestimated the difficulty, but still honor your agreements. It is the difficult tests in life that demonstrate a person's true character. He'd never thought he'd someday be impressed by a criminal's dedication. Ashok gave her a respectful bow. Thank you. Thera seemed a bit taken aback by that. Surprise turned to annoyance, almost as if she thought Ashok was being insincere. Fine. Whatever. I'm soaked and freezing. I'm going to get some of that slop for dinner and warm myself by the fire in the company of my fake husband. Do you not have a real one? I used to. But if I ever wanted another, I've met many who'd make for far worse company than Keita. I'd better go before he starts spouting off revolutionary nonsense to the locals. Good night. She began to walk away. But before Asher could begin eating, Thera turned back. It's so cold. Will you be all right out here tonight? I'll be fine. That's right. There had been genuine concern there, but now she tried to be nonchalant about it. I suppose your kind don't feel things like the rest of us? Ashok shook his head. We still feel. We just learn not to want the things we can't ever have. Thera tilted her head to the side, a curious look on her face, as if she wanted to say something else. But then she must have decided against it, because she put her hood up and ventured out into the storm. Finding a spot that wasn't under a roof leak, Ashok sat down and leaned his back against a wagon wheel. The food was bland. A miner in, in poor lands, couldn't afford much in the way of spices. The sausage was mostly blood and fat, and from the flavor he couldn't even tell what kind of animal it had come from. But he was so hungry it didn't matter, and he chewed it anyway. The fat coated the roof of his mouth and teeth and clung there, greasy. One of the castlers was staring at him through the slats of a horse stall, looking more like a filthy wild animal than a child. He couldn't have been more than nine or ten, but it was hard to tell since he was so thin and sickly. His clothing was nothing more than a mismatched tangle of old rags, knotted together in a heap for warmth. Is that what I looked like? The boy was neglecting his shoveling, and for a moment Ashok was concerned that he'd been recognized. But then he realized the boy was only staring hungrily at his dinner. Ashok looked down at the bowl, then back at the starving child. He stood up. The boy instinctively cowered, and the other castlers rushed over to protect him. Ashok was so used to not paying attention to their kind that he'd not noticed this one was a girl, a few years older than the boy, and in just as sorry a state. She dropped her shovel, grabbed hold of the boy, and began dragging him away. So sorry, so sorry. Stop, Ashok ordered. The girl did so, but she was shivering uncontrollably. As she stared at her bare, blackened, and filthy feet, she stammered, Brother didn't mean to look at you, worker, sir. Please don't beat him. She was honestly terrified. Ashok had seen such quivering fear before, but normally only on battlefields or before an execution. Her fear was contagious enough that it was making the horses and oxen shift nervously in their stalls. Be calm. I'm not going to beat anyone. He set the bowl on the fence. Here. Oh! The girl looked at the food with a nervous, pained expression, but didn't approach. On the other hand, her brother must have had more hunger than fear because he snatched up the bowl and ran away. He crouched in the corner and began to eat. The back of his rag shirt fell open, revealing that his skin was covered in old lash scars and fresh purple bruises. When was the last time you were fed? Ashok demanded. A few days. I will trade for the food. Resigned to her fate, the girl seemed to melt in defeat. The fear had been for her brother, not for herself. Do what you want to me, but please don't hurt me too much, because I still have more stalls to clean. What? No. Ashok felt like someone had just slapped him in the face. That's no. 
nothing like that. There's no trade. The food is yours. It is a gift. She clearly didn't understand the concept. You did a good job caring for my oxen. Just go eat. Suddenly flushed and unexpectedly angry, Ashok went back to his wagon. The girl fled. Ashok watched the castless children eat the vile slop as if it was a great hall feast. Their overseer was obviously neglecting them, but that wasn't against the law if they were doing a bad job. Starvation was a legally acceptable punishment, and he'd never really thought about it before. Ashok had experienced the weakness and pains of hunger, but nothing like this. He'd spied a pile of old grain sacks and some flea-ridden blankets and realized that was their bed. These two didn't even rate a place in the castless barracks. You see that, Ashok? That's your law. That's what you've been defending. Shut up, Keita. Ashok muttered to the priest who wasn't there. There were almost no memories left of his life before Angruvadal, other than scrubbing blood from a stone floor, but he remembered that he'd had a mother who had loved him. These children didn't even have that. The entirety of the law was memorized, imprinted deep into the fiber of his being, and he could cite nearly any line. So he knew there was nothing technically illegal here, yet it still seemed unjust, and that gnawed at him. Mind made up, Ashok got into the back of the wagon. He had a thick wool blanket that made sleeping beneath the wagon bearable. He took the blanket, a sack of dried fruit, and another of jerky, and carried them over to the children's sleeping area. The untouchables watched him, nervous, as if he was going to loot their pathetic belongings. Instead, he dropped the goods there, walked back to his wagon, found the driest spot possible beneath the wagon, and tried to go to sleep. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the promise in the pregnant pause at the end of the announcement that the Kidu FDL has been discovered but accidentally dropped down the drain of causality by a careless research assistant who tried to use it to open a gateway to Tomorrowland without having to pay for the entire Magic Kingdom. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon, author of Mark of Cain. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.